Today's podcast is brought to you by Blue Canary. The bird has landed on beautiful Bainbridge Island, conveniently located at 499 Madison Avenue. ASE master technician Clint Ramsey brings over 15 years of experience, award-winning diagnostic skill, and a desire to reinvent the automotive repair experience. Schedule an appointment online at bluecanary.biz or call them today at 206-451-4220. This segment of the Bystander Podcast is brought to you by Eagle Harbor Insurance. We don't sell insurance, we help people buy it. This has always been their motto and continues. They understand every family has different insurance needs, be it coverage or premiums. No two cases are the same, and they will always do their best to guide you into the proper coverage to fit your budget. They are here to help anytime. Give them a call at 206-842-7410 or contact them online at eagleharborinsurance.com. Our podcast is brought to you by That's a Sum Pizza. Using a 120-year-old starter from the Klondike Gold Rush, they make unique sourdough crusts that can't be found anywhere else in the world. That's a Sum Pizza also delivers wine and beer. Call 206-842-2292. Order online at thatsasum.com or download That's a Sum Pizza app on Android and iOS. Congratulations to the team of Alan Raymond and Will Grant, who brought home the first place trophy from the recent Caputo Cup at the Pizza and Pasta Show in Atlantic City. I got something for your mind, body, and soul. Okay, so we're giving you a little level opportunity here if you need one. There's a comfortable spot for me to sit in and comf- comfortable distance as well. Can you slide this down? You got a little radio voice. A little bit low? <coughs> How's that? Towards your chin there. How's that one? Is that coming a little better? A fool, a fool, I met a fool in the forest, a motley fool, a miserable world. As I do live by food, I met a fool who laid him down and basked him in the sun and railed on Lady Fortune in good terms, in good set terms, and yet a motley fool. Good moral fool, quoth I. Nay, sir, quoth he, call me not fool till heaven hath sent me fortune. And then he drew a dial from his poke and, looking on it with lackluster eye, says very wisely, It is ten o'clock, thus we may see, quoth he, how the world wags. "'Tis but an hour ago since it was nine, "'and after one hour more it will be eleven. "'You got it? Seem, 
It's beautiful. I was trying to be present for you. Poetry. <laughs> no, no, I just. Um, no, it's a little low, so. Okay. Um, let's get a little closer, maybe. All right. There we go. How about that? That's uh, a little closer. Is that a little better for you? Yeah, if you, since you can see me here. Yeah, yeah. I want these bars to be about there. Way up there, huh? Way, way, way up, there, up there. there. Wow, that would be, I'm really close and I'm talking really loud now. I mean, I can I can fill it for you if you want, but yeah, there we go. I need to find out what too high is. How about that? Is that a little better for you? Okay. Yeah, let's All right. try to be as normal as possible. Okay. Give the man a microphone. He'll use it. <clears throat> he'll start fishing? Yeah, he'll start fishing. He'll teach others to fish, teach others to use a microphone, and then pretty soon everybody's using a microphone to fish. It's crazy. Nice. It just gets crazy. All right, I think we're rolling already. All right. Welcome, Podcastville, to the Bystander Podcast. I have two buddies in here, and Tom and Matt, who have started a new theater group on the island in Rolling Bay called ND, I-N-D, little play on words. Who came up with that name? I did. Yeah. Tom did. <laughs> well done, Tom. Yeah. He's a keeper. Uh, I came up with it... Um, it's intended to reflect a couple of different things. So uh, it's a small I-N and a capital D. And it sounds like independent, uh, which this theater company is. You mentioned us being in Rolling Bay. That's where we did our first performance. But we plan other performances in other places on Bainbridge. So we'll be moving around quite a bit. Uh, that was one of my first questions. How are you going to fit a theater into Rolling Bay? Well, there's uh, one there already. And is that the spacecraft yet? Correct. Yeah. 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 So for our first production, which was closed for maintenance, we uh, we set it up. We, we have a, a set of risers that we borrowed from the lesser known players uh, and set up essentially an L-shaped uh, viewing area and then had a, a stage where the stage normally is. Nice. Uh, you want to put that mic down towards your chin just a little bit, Matt? Thanks. I get a little squeak there. <clears throat> How's that? Is that a little better? Sexy. Okay, great. The other, That's what the I'm other, going for. The other part of indie is um, it's supposed to suggest a little bit of three-dimensional. So indie, the, when the D operates independently, 3D, 4D. Um, and when you come see something from us, it has multi-dimensions. Explain 4D. That's kind of a relative new term. 4D? They're, they're using it in, in movies now. Well, 3D is... Width, depth, and height. All right. If I remember my geometry, for the fourth dimension is time. Ah. So uh, when you compute anything in space, you, you've got four dimensions running, um, and because theater happens in space and time, uh, it takes place over a period of time. That sort of fourth dimensional aspect. It also has a little bit of pun on the fourth wall, which is an important part of theater. Whenever you're watching a play, there's it's happening in a room. There are three walls there you can see, and the fourth wall is missing. That's where we look in to the actors, and it's an important part of understanding how theater operates. Hey, you you guys are based around the actor itself, correct? Is that kind of your mission statement? I, I don't want to get ahead. Why don't Why don't we talk about your mission statement here? Yeah. Uh, Thanks, Tim. It's threefold. Uh, first, we seek to, to create productions that inspire social change. Uh, second, uh, we, uh, we, we look to compensate all the artists, from actors to directors and others. Uh, and then uh, finally, all of our shows are with free admission 
how are my levels? Are they okay? Yeah, yeah. Sorry, uh, okay. didn't mean to distract okay. you there. No, that's all right. Um, so, so really, there's three legs to that to that stool. Okay, and how do you make this profit? And I, I don't understand theater or Shakespeare, which I know you guys are both really good at, um, and have a common thread there. If the admission is free and the actors are paid, where's the money come from? Donors. I I think one of the flaws with theaters and and perception in the public, when you buy a ticket to a theater, say in Seattle for $50 to see a play, your seat does not cost $50. It costs $75 or even $100. The difference is being picked up by donors. So unfortunately, people have an attitude that whatever they pay for their ticket is the actual price of the ticket. We're dispensing with the facade, with the charade. Charade? Charade. Facade, charade. You say potato. We're dispensing with the charade and saying, no, we're never going to charge you exactly what your ticket is worth. So we're going to give you this ticket for free. Come in, sit down, watch our show. If you're inspired by what you see and want to support it, make a donation when it's over. And the reality, and so we want everyone to be able to see our shows. You want to come see it? We've got a seat for you. Come in, sit down. You don't like it, get up and go. You haven't risked anything other than some time with us. If you do like it and you can donate a few dollars, that's great. We'll accept that. We have wonderfully generous donors who recognize what it is that we're doing that are willing to underrate underwrite a lot of tickets and a lot of seats. I shouldn't say tickets. We don't sell tickets. We take reservations, but they're willing to underwrite that. And that allows us um, the freedom to pick plays that otherwise might not sell, uh, take risks that otherwise might not work. The economics of theater are very challenging. And so Tim, your question's a good one. Uh, You know, few go into theater for the money. Uh, you know, you sometimes hear about various stars who movie stars who will take time off to do a show on Broadway or somewhere and they're not doing it for the money. They're doing it for the passion. So, um, we recognize some of those inherent challenges in the economics of theater. And with that in mind, we were, uh, we decided that we would try to flip the model. And essentially as Tom described, we would, allow for reservations, allow for free admission, and and create a way for folks to give as they feel inspired to support. And what what's fascinating is that with our first show, which was Close for Maintenance at Rolling Bay Hall earlier this month, it, it was fascinating to see how folks stepped up. There were some, a, a handful who came to the show who didn't donate, and that's fine. That's actually great. That's part of the mission. We want to create a place where no questions asked folks can come and see a performance free of charge. There were a few who gave very generously and more than, you know, more way more than you might think. And then there were many in between. And, and so that distribution curve, well, two things, one, first of all, it was a bit of a relief because this is, you know, a bit of an We'd experiment like this to last for a while. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and so it was, I would say extremely encouraging to see how folks who came to the production, stepped up to support in whatever way that they were inspired to give and were in a position to give. 
Bainbridge Island has a very savvy theater-going community. Very, very savvy. And many of them understand what the expenses are for putting on productions and are, are willing to pay for a production when they recognize this is something I cannot get anywhere else. Yeah, we have quite a few theater groups. We have Ovation, uh, Bainbridge Performing Arts, which I, I believe I've seen both of you guys in that realm. Yeah. Um, what else we got going on in theater? Lesser known players, Matt mentioned a little while ago. The Edge Improv guys, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Island Theater. The studio. Yeah. Chris's spot. Mm-hmm. Chris, if you're out there, I still need you to come in. I need to talk to you. <laughs> <laughs> I want to know what you're doing. Maybe a play with us someday if we can reel him in. Yeah, Chris, there you go. You got a spot to maybe get paid. <laughs> yeah, and Chris and Matt Longmire, who's a, a filmmaker who lives on the island, are putting on a host of uh, sort of filmmaking and other uh, related workshops, and they've got a summer camp uh, about that. So, so Chris should definitely come in and talk to you about that because they're they're doing some great stuff. Yeah, that camp for kids looked good. It doesn't fit our schedule, but no. That seemed like a very good offering. Hey, let's stop and make a quick pause. For whatever reason, your mic is whistling at just a touch. So I'm going to bring this away from your face. <clears throat> Got to maintain that sexiness. Okay. How's that? And we're back. Okay, cool. <laughs> so how did you two guys meet? Was it through Shakespeare or acting? Or? Was it an audition? I think it was an audition. Yeah. Uh, for The Tempest. Okay. Which yeah. I, I, I owe Tom a debt of gratitude. The Tempest, which was the first of uh, the of uh, BPA, the BPA Shakespeare Society, you know, really the summer Shakespeare productions, was one that Tom um, led the charge on, and and that was the first show that I had done in, frankly, about twenty years. Why did you audition? Do you remember what made you audition? That was one that featured Chris Sotavia actually as the as the monster Caliban. Um, and seeing him with his shirt off and tight pants was a was a big selling point for that particular show. That was probably the biggest draw for me. I just want to see Chris with his shirt off. No, um, Chris, I'm sorry you're not here yeah. to defend yourself, but that's that's what you get the when you don't come on the podcast. Were epic. To, to be honest, I think it was because we had just seen a production at BPA, and I think it was a show that Ted Dowling was in, and I remember thinking, "Wow." I, I used to think community theater was something that would be well-intentioned and and perhaps the production quality wouldn't be that great. And I remember being frankly blown away. And that in combination with, uh, I had never done Shakespeare, uh, an opportunity to, to sink my teeth into that uh, was, uh, was, was very appealing. Actors need to do Shakespeare. I'm as a director, I'm always a little suspicious of an actor who delivers a resume that doesn't have at least one Shakespeare play in there somewhere. There are things you learn doing Shakespeare that you don't learn anywhere else. Can either one of you guys give a passage from that? From the Tempest? Yeah. Tom might be able to. I, I tend to my short term memory rewrites over, you know, all past shows. I, I struggle to recall any line from a show I've been in. You do look, my son, in a moved sort, as if you were dismayed. Be cheerful, sir. Our revels now are ended. These are actors, as I foretold you, are all spirits and are melted into air, into thin air. And like the baseless fabric of this vision, the cloud capped towers, the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples, the great globe itself, yea, all which it inherits shall dissolve, 
and like this insubstantial pageant faded, leave not a rack behind. We are such stuff as dreams are made on, and our little life is rounded with a sleep. Bear with me, my old brain is troubled. If you be pleased, retire into my cell and there repose a turn or two I'll walk to still my beating mind. Well done, Tom. Well done. That's uh, uh, Prospero, Act 4, Scene 1, 2. Come on, help me out here. Uh, it's it's in the play. <laughs> it's definitely in the play. I remember that scene. Act 4, Scene 2, Line 80, 85, I think. I like that, uh, Matt with the Yale and the Stanford education. Uh, can't keep up with the old Seattle U. Hawk. Yeah. I like it. Red Hawks. What, what was it like going to Seattle U? I worked at Garfield for a long time, so uh, I had a good connection with Relatively Seattle recently, it was great. Uh, grad school, a program in nonprofit arts leadership. Um, their leadership school is very developed and outstanding and uh, taught me a lot about how to run um, – Theaters and museums and things like that. Nonprofit, small nonprofit arts organizations. Matt, what, your college education was a little different, right? It was. It was a, I would say, a winding path. Tim uh, pursued uh, interest in in politics and political change uh, was really my main focus. So uh, my undergrad was in political science. I got a master's later in South Africa in political studies during Mandela's, um, during that country's transition to democracy. Um, so political change and social change has always been very important to me. Uh, and then later got my MBA at, at Yale. Part of Yale's program is focused on nonprofit management. And so that's where um, both work-wise and then also the chance to work with Tom on indie theater fit nicely into that. Yeah, and you have a bit of a financial background as well. So maybe if the money runs dry, you can find a river full of cash somewhere, which is always helpful. Just make sure the decimals are in the right place. Uh, As an artist, I sometimes don't pay attention to the details as much as I should. It's good for me to hang out with Matt. Yeah, you're a sum of your closest friends, right? And we all need a few more friends like Matt. Yeah, yeah, the par- partners. I-, I used to have a theater company on Bainbridge called Swinging Hammer Productions, and we did a couple shows, and that was uh, my own little baby. And uh, I read somewhere a little while ago, if you want to go someplace fast, go alone. If you want to go someplace far, go in a group. And I was done going fast, and I wanted to go someplace far. And so I hooked up with Matt, uh, and I something I hope, you know, we're we're plan to give it about a three-year run and then reassess so we've we've got things pretty well set up with the way we like it um at least launching for for several years and then we'll we'll reassess at that time Uh, but we want people to be able to donate knowing that this is going to be around for a little while it's hard to donate to something that might vanish in a few months well, you guys already have secured quite a few plays for the extension of the rest of the year here, correct? Yes, uh, and the the level, I, I would say the caliber of directors, just for example, that that we're fortunate to have attracted. Uh, who Dina, live on Bainbridge Island. Yeah, Dinah Manoff, Tony Award-winning actor who lives here, directed our first show. Uh, Wilson Milam, uh, he hates it when we say this, but he was a Tony-nominated director. He's directed in London, New York, uh, Seattle Rep, elsewhere. 
Uh, he's uh, amazing. He's going to direct our next show, The North Plan, a very politically charged. This is play. where Matt's uh, political science background helps out because the next one is is full politics. We're going. It's September. We've got an election coming up. It's time to go into politics. It's funny, Tim, because it's a show that is somewhat, you know, it's almost dystopian, but not quite, right? There's a power grab in DC. Things start going crazy. And when this play was written a few years ago, this seemed like it's a comedy. Uh, it seemed like a stretch, right? Like, oh, ha ha, yeah, that had never things, happened. Things can go crazy, and you you look at the news today, and things get crazier every day. And the the and people are put in cages in the play, and you think that would never happen. And we open up the news, and there are people in cages. Yesterday, yeah, yeah. So that's going to be fun. And then uh, in November, we've got Dylan Thomas, the uh, English poet who near the end of his life started writing prose pieces. So we've got some poetry prose readings. That'll be at the museum. And we're just in the process now of putting together the the 2019 season. Oh, my word. Time flies, even when you're not having fun. Can 2020 be far behind? It, it can't come soon enough, that's for sure. But uh, So we're, we're starting to plan out future years. Uh, a lot of what we do is to reach out to actors. And if there are any actors out there listening to your program, Tim, I'm talking to you, actors and directors and producers. Uh, if We're actively soliciting suggestions, uh, people who are passionate who need to do a particular play please talk to matt and i we'll get a reading together we'll figure out how to make it appear on stage well it's a good time to give out your website how do they get a hold of you thank you tim uh we're at indtheater.org so that's i-n-d theater so it's t-h-e-a-t-r-e dot org why did you have to spell that? Because I had to. There's an English yeah. and an, an American spelling, and the, the old American spelling T H E A T E R is slowly vanishing. Okay. Um, I would say at least 50, 60 percent of theaters now are using R E, um, and I, I think that's going to even happen more and more. Um, so yeah, we're, we're so modern. We're going back to the old way. Are you in the Urban Dictionary yet? <laughs> Not yet, but we'll get there. Um, so you talked about social change, and I know you for a long time now, and I think we have similar um, interest in social change. And I think this podcast is a, a communal social change uh, format, and we're trying to bring interesting ideas, interesting people, and talk about difficult things for personal growth and communal growth. What directly results in social change through theater? Good one. Excellent question, Tim. It it varies. It depends on depends on the show, depends on the person, and often you can have you know multiple audience members going and seeing the sh the same show and coming away with a completely different reaction. But our intention is to have. Um, is to produce performances that that inspire, that challenge, and that um, uh, that that pose difficult questions that otherwise um, are 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 tricky to um, to surface. It, it, theater is such a unique experience where 
Um, it's it can be at times immersive. It's live. It's real time. It's not it's not like watching TV or watching a movie. You can you can see in real time the reactions of of the actors with one another or the, you know themselves. And if you get the right material and the right the right setting. Uh, the kind of visceral and evocative experience that can happen in a theater is is truly unique. It gives audience members an opportunity to think about what they're experiencing. And I think the most important way in which theater creates social change is the theater is based upon vicarious experiences. We experience things through other people's actions. And as an actor, what we do is we walk in other people's shoes and like walk on that stage. And I am no longer Tom Chalinar. I am this other character. And that's what I do as an actor. And I think subconsciously for the audience members, they also are forced to confront what would I do if I were in those circumstances? How would I act? And I think theater has at its core a basic experience of empathy. And it forces you to confront feelings that you may not like, that you may not have even known you had. Uh, And discomfort can be a very powerful agent of action. And what we hope is people are a little uncomfortable and then they go do something about the fact that they're uncomfortable. There's some forms of theater that take that to an extreme. I, I want to be clear, we're not that kind of theater, but uh, but we certainly you know aim to to have productions that are that are provocative, that that um, that that compel people to 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 take a closer look at at many you know extremely important issues of the day that are happening right now. Now, how do you find? so much time to organize the theater remember lines and you still holding down a day job too are you sleeping sleep is so overrated tim i know no it's totally underrated <laughs> we need a x amount of sleep cycles per, per week memorizing lines is easier than it than it appears i think yeah and and the other thing too is that in in producing a show there are there there there's no shortage of to dos and action items and things that one can do around line you know getting all the ducks in a row for production and marketing it and and um, and everything like that but uh, you know it's also different from actually being in a show. Um, often, you know, you're in a show and you might have a, you know, a, a six week rehearsal period where you're rehearsing f- for five days a week and you've got, you know, memorizing lines outside of that. So that, that can be a significant burden challenge over a, you know, a period of time like that. I, I, and, and while certainly producing, which is what Tom and I are doing is, is, is not, uh, Time consuming, but it's front loaded. Yeah, you know, as things ramp up in production, in many ways, Matt and I do less. If we've done our our, our work properly over the six months prior to that uh, production launching, there's not a whole lot for us to do. 
Um, so things can be spaced out and planned relatively effectively. And that's why it's good to have a partner. Yeah. And once we have the infrastructure in place, you know, that, that was part of the challenge around our first show was like, oh my gosh, it's our first show. It's our first season. And it's, it's, it's the launch of indie theater and getting that infrastructure in place was not a small task, but we're hopeful that, you know, those, those scale economies are now in place and, and that going forward, we're able to, to build on that. So the Rolling Bay uh, spot was limited seating, standing room only. If you need to get these donor donors to come in to support this endeavor for as long as you'd like, how do you go about finding larger venues and, and filling those venues? Good question. Uh, Bainbridge really needs a 99-seat theater. Um, that would be great. So we wave our magic wand and get someone to build a theater. Uh, BPA is, is outstanding organization, but at 250 seats, that's a lot of seats. And although you can rent BPA for productions, I have swinging hammer went into BPA for one act. So a few years ago, uh, their program is fully, almost fully booked. They're having an yeah, incredibly diverse on. program and, uh, all kinds of bookies. So it's not really available uh, except for a show or two. Um, and one of the things I think that makes the kind of plays that Matt and I want to produce good is that they're intimate. If you're in a theater with 50, 60 people, it's a very different experience than if you're in a theater with 500 people. And there are things that you experience in a much smaller, tighter space. Uh, and the the things on stage seem a whole lot realer when you're seven feet away from them than when you are 170 feet away from them. Um, and so I think a lot of what we want to do is take advantage of that very close proximity. And in those little theaters, people, please leave your cell phones behind. <laughs> Absolutely. We, we were pleased, Tim, that we were able to fit in 51 seats for clothes for maintenance, our first show. So we had three performances, had had that number of seats available. We had folks on the standing room list, and, and it worked nicely that there were in some cases some folks with reservations who, who didn't show and those who um, you know either showed up or were on the standing room list were able to get a seat. And and so we we you know happily had a situation where we didn't turn anyone away, which was great. And for our um, productions in the fall, where we're doing um, two Dylan Thomas um, uh, pieces, uh, those are going to be at the at the art museum. And so there are even more seats there, which is great. Uh, Tom, do you want to speak a 60, bit to that? Sixty-eight permanent seats and quite a f space for quite a few temporary seats. So that's that's the place that can get almost up to a hundred. Although it's a very particular kind of stage, it's not like a main theater stage. There's no wings, there's no backstage, there's no side entrances or anything like that. So the right play works well there. Uh, one of the nice things about being flexible is once we decide on a play, Matt and I can talk about, okay, where does this go well? As opposed to having to fit square pegs into round holes, we're going to say, look at this, we have a square peg, let's find a square hole to put it in. What do they call those little outdoor theaters with... They do Shakespeare in the woods. Is that a, not Arboretum? Amphitheater? A, amphitheater. Yeah, amphitheater. Let, let's put one up at uh, Battle Point Park. Yeah, 
But then you do your play, and in the middle of your play, you've got whistles from the you know the soccer field around the corner. You've got kids at the playground. Soccer and lacrosse is not always there, and there's plenty of space. And what? How many acres is that? It's big. It is, yeah, and there is Green Stage does, exactly, uh, yeah, Green exactly. Stage does a play there so every summer. Sort of a virtual amphitheater there with the stage, and you've been to concerts there, yeah. yeah so Leroy Bell and his only two friends, or what? they they do they often do it over by the um, the observatory, right? Because yeah. there's a little embankment that surrounds that. Yeah, right? so yeah. Green Stage is a theater, is Seattle. Uh, production is a, a Seattle theater basically that does a touring production each summer of a uh, Shakespeare two Shakespeare show. plays they travel them all over St. Yeah. Michelle Winery and Gasworks Park yeah. and places like that Vashon Island they get around yeah, Vashon Island all over. One, who's that one cat that's in everything from Vashon Island he was in Californication he's a principal I think on the Goldbergs you know who I'm talking about no oh man I want to meet this guy. My cultural or references this woman. stop with happy days, so I can't I can't help you after 1984. Ralph Mouth. <laughs> 1984. Um, what else do we want to talk about here? Um, tell me a little bit about this upcoming play that's next. The North Plan by Jason Wells. Yeah, it's... Uh, Tim, the, the North Plan is... Uh, a fascinating story because it takes place at a time when there's been a power grab in DC. You've got different factions sort of facing off with each other. That's the backdrop. Where the play centers is with a, a whistleblower from the State Department who is on the run with a top secret enemies list. He gets apprehended in a small town in the Ozarks, Lotus, Missouri. Lotus, Missouri. Yep. And and so the play itself takes place in this um, police station in this small rural town where this whistleblower is basically trying to talk his way out of being in jail. Meanwhile, there are a couple of DHS agents who are on their way to interrogate him. So you've got this, this highly loaded, politically charged backdrop and a, a case where a whistleblower is trying to escape in order to 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 basically you know unveil this 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 enemies list to expose the regime that is that is trying to take over interesting interesting you like that how'd you how do you pick these you you hear a play you read a play you see a play and it it sticks in your head this is a play i heard read by a theater company uh, sadly now defunct in Seattle called New Century Theater Company. The local uh, gentleman, um, Peter Dillon O'Connor, was one of the founding members of that, that company. He was born and raised here on Bainbridge Island, lives in Seattle now. They did a reading of this play. I think Peter played Carlton Berg, the, the activist, when I heard the play. Uh, they did a reading of the play in, in a bar in Seattle, and it haunted me um, from the first time I heard it. Uh, and I thought, you know, I'd, I'd like to see that play sometime. And um, that was when I, I passed it to Matt, and I said, read this. What do you think? It definitely hit the bullseye, and we're so excited to have Wilson Milam directing this. Wilson, I think, has a reputation for being unconventional 
taking um, risks, being bold, and um, he certainly has immersed himself in this script uh, in a way that no other director I've worked with, uh, possibly with present company excluded um has has done he's uh, he's he he knows it backwards and forwards and and it's what's exciting to me is that there are so many layers to this play from you know whether it's politics or whether it's about individual rights and freedoms whether it's Racism. race relations um it's it's all in gender there. roles it's got a little bit of everything doesn't it yeah, it's it's really in many ways a mirror of our times in in a, in a way that's packaged. Um, it's going to be uh, a doozy. Let's talk about current current today. What do you think kind of haunts you the most now in what's going on in the world? What's the, what's the next story coming out? Yeah. Well, there's there's a lot of there's certainly a lot of renewed tension between East and West, between the you know between Russia and the United States. That's something we're taking a look at for this this next season that that could be very timely. Uh, you know, you you have only to to look to um, issues around the Me Too, and that's enough movement, um, um, gender roles, um, bad behavior. Um, and, uh, you know, and so th around issues of, um, uh, equity and inclusion, uh, these are all themes that are very much on our mind as we think about the next season. Yeah. In, in acting and theater and movies and TV, there's a lot of equality people want to get paid the same. There's streaming, there's, there's the whole entertainment industry is got to be changing dramatically. You know, it's not the good old boys network and the blacklisting of Hollywood. And, uh, you can only get something of a certain ilk from HBO or, or Showtime. It is free content. It is paid content. It is me doing a podcast with just no ability whatsoever. And just saying, I'm, I'm there, I'm doing it. And that opportunity to do it wasn't really there you know you would have to be a radio dj you know 10 20 years ago and that's the only way and you would have to say and do what anybody else formats you into how do you guys see the entertainment world shaping up for the future tom and i know you're biting on this Come on. i i just the the example you just gave right there tim is is perfect i i never thought i'd do i can do this now um the the whole uh, electronic publishing and the way in which I can do something and get it out there has uh, yielded an incredible amount of artistic expression. There used to be a process whereby that was curated, shall we say. Somebody would sit in a chair and say, that's good. We need to get it out there. That's not so good. We need to eliminate that. All the stuff that used to be eliminated is now getting out there among all that dreck is a couple of diamonds and so i think the great benefit of this incredible flood of artistic and content. content is there are a couple things out there that would never have been made before 
that suddenly are getting made and when enough people have a chance to hear it, say, wow, that's great. If you, I mean, how many times did the guy who did Hamilton pitch that show and was told it wasn't going to work? Yeah, Book of Mormon. Yeah. How about that one? So, or even South Park. When you think about that was probably post-electronic, right? South Park came after the internet, I would think. Um, so, so I think that what you're seeing is this incredible flood and, and what is it? Five theater companies on Bainbridge Island, you know, that's a reflection of the same kind of thing. Uh, and I think that, uh, for all of us, it's beneficial. You're going to see some stuff that's not so good. Probably. Oh, oh, well, you'll, you'll see a lot of great stuff you wouldn't have otherwise seen without those opportunities. There are pluses and minuses around tech, the influence of technology. On the one hand, there's so much stuff out there. On the other hand, there's so much stuff out there. And so, there, you know, it cuts both ways, right? It's also easier than ever for folks to get what they want through uh, Netflix or Amazon. But the advantage for theater is that, you know, 20 years ago, it was a heavy lift to be able to launch a theater company, market it effectively, um, have folks turn out in numbers. We were very fortunate uh, to, you know, on a couple of levels. One, um, in promoting close for maintenance, uh, we started by pushing it out there on social media. And before we even sent the first email, um, the, the first two shows had, had sold out. And so we were fortunately in a position to be able to offer a third as a matinee, but without, you know, social media allowed us to leapfrog even just email communication. And so, you know, there are all these kind of scale economies and ability to, you know, to, to use technology to get the word out and do what we do more faster, better, cheaper, that is helping theater. Also, you have the introduction of, um, organizations like Shunpike. So Shunpike is a Seattle nonprofit that has 501c3 status. And what their mission is, is to help independent arts um, um, producers or organizations to do what they do under Shunpike's 501c3 umbrella. So Indie Theater is a Washington State nonprofit, but we're also fiscally sponsored by Shunpike so that donations that individuals make to indie theater, they actually make to Shunpike, which, which receives them and processes them on our behalf. And so the opportunity to have a relationship like that takes away a whole layer of overhead and, and cost to even getting in the business that, that before, before this would have been very challenging. It's so much more collaborative. You know, I, I think, I want to relate this back to the podcast a little bit is before you would have to find a station that would put you on as some type of host. And then you would have a broadcasting company that would have to pick up that station that okay is that host. And then there's somebody that's saying, this is the content that you have. You have to break every seven and a half minutes to sell stuff on the, on air, you know, but we can now have a collaborative relationship. I've known you from many endeavors and they all have intertwined into different things. And we are collaborating here without the guise of parameters. We can do what we want. You're doing theater. I'm doing podcasting. We're happy. We are, the chains are cut. We're free. We can be us. It's nice. And uh, I think what you guys are doing is, 
is an underserved area. And the more people that know about it, the more people are going to enjoy it. And there is a lot of content out there. But there's a thing about digital content and being in a live theater and having that cell phone on that person go off and you're like, hey, come on, you're in a theater. <laughs> and then enjoying someone that you had no idea of. You know, like Shannon, who was in your last play, um, good friend, we've collaborated on a few things. But how I met her was teaching baby sign language. She's an ASL instructor, I believe. Yeah, and it went from that to she's in a band with the guy that makes the music for the podcast. She's in your theater. Her child's in my child's class. So it's very much a, a community collaboration. And I think this community will support as much theater that's out there as possible. And as I think they'll they'll definitely turn out. Uh, one of the things that we're really interested in is uh, since we're paying the actors, we we hope to have a really high level of of actor talent on the stage, and it'll be interesting to see the degree to which this particular community values that. Matt and I do. Uh, both in terms of working with actors and um, having been on stage with actors. Uh, working with professionals is always a delight. Yeah, Sh Shannon's incredible. Dinah's incredible, for sure. Yeah. And, and, have you seen Ted in uh, the Rockaway series? So yeah, I've seen the, the concept piece for that and, and the, the opportunity to, to see actors like Ted who are professionals. I still remember Ted like Chris and, Sotavia and, and Chris in yeah. American Buffalo, which, which Tom produced with swinging hammer was just remarkable. I mean, that's the kind of caliber of production that, that, that easily could imagine um, in an off Broadway show. And to be able to bring that to light on Bainbridge Island is, uh, is a pleasure. And there are a lot of pros we could mention. Barbara Deering's a pro. Your turn. <laughs> a lot. A so lot. Yeah. So yeah. many. John yeah. Ellis, um, various members of, of the uh, of the Edge. There are a lot of theater professionals in this uh, community. Rodney Shearwood comes to mind. Yeah, there was this guy, Chip Holmes, who was in Glengarry Glen Ross, a former uh, former professional actor from Texas, now lives here in Seattle. So You're going to have to say that one again because yeah. it's Chip Wood. Did what did I say? You said Chip Holmes. Oh my gosh, I did. Yeah. Oh, that's so know, funny. You must know Chip. Holmes. You know, Chip Holmes is a guy I went to college with. It is not Chip Holmes. I just want to be clear <laughs> it's on Chip that. Wood. For the record, Chip Wood. And what is his parents thinking? Chip Wood. I know. I know. Yeah, right. <laughs> is it Chip Wood? We have to take that whole thing out there. It's Chip. Chip Wood. Yeah. Chip Wood. We don't edit or fact check here. So. <laughs> <laughs> what you said is on record. He gives Let the record uh, show. Um, and incredible performances every time he's been on Bainbridge's stage. He he just yeah he was in a production of BPA uh, called uh, Building the Wall. That's right. Which uh, another very timely production about you know sort of in retrospect after a wall has been built and people have been rounded up and put in camps. That, that that's similar to some things going on right now. Yeah, does yeah, life imitate art, or does or does art lim, uh, imitate life? Right. So looking down the road here, you just had the. Tell me about this uh, under Milkwood play. It's a play for voices, 
So Dylan Thomas is working in the 1940s and that's before television. So he's working in a radio medium and he's a poet well known for a poem called do not go gently into that good night. And, uh, he started working on pieces for the BBC and, uh, a child's Christmas in Wales, which we'll be doing some performances of in December, uh, was a short prose piece that he, uh, wrote. And then under Milkwood was uh, a project he was working on when he, uh, sadly died young of excess in, uh, Greenwich Village, Manhattan, back in the day. That's my favorite movie, Pope of Greenwich Village. Yeah. By far. And uh, he um, he was working on this piece. It's a play for voices. It has 65 different characters who are in this town. And in the course of a couple hours, we meet all the denizens of this town. And for actors, we'd I'm going to do it with about 10 actors. So as an exercise for actors, it's exciting and thrilling to have to create five or six entirely different people to be, but only with your voice. So we have easels. Actors won't be memorizing. They'll be reading the the piece because it's a play for voices, but they have to create entirely different vocal characteristics for each of the actors in a Welsh accent. So uh, that should be really, really fun. Uh, the kind of play that you're just going to sit back and listen and escape into a world of sounds. That sounds like a radio show for the Bystander Podcast. Yeah, maybe. 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 Get them in here practicing a bit, at least. That sounds interesting, and I was, I was hoping you weren't going to say it was a one-man show with sixty-five. No, 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 no. <laughs> like Orphan Black. All right, hey, I brought up this cat. This is the cat I was talking about on Vashon Island. You know who he is? I recognize him for sure, okay. but I don't know his name. Now I know which principal you mean too. Yeah, from Goldberg's. Yeah. yeah okay. I'm sorry. People at home cannot see that, but uh, you look it up on the on the Google. Do the Google. Dinah always says that to me. <laughs> like, do the Google. Do the Google. Use the Google. <laughs> There's always a the before the Google. It's like the Facebook. Yeah, yeah. As funny as could be. Um, what plays are going on right now on the world stage that interest you and um, you feel good about, and we should know about? We all know Hamilton's out there crushing it. There's a lot. There's a lot. I'm, I'm Can you guys to... hear the rocks rattling? Yeah. <laughs> well, I just I'm trying to figure out which direction to take that. So what most people hear about are are the big the big namers, um, and you know the latest movie, the latest play version of a movie. Uh, the most exciting play that's out there is the one I haven't heard of yet. Uh, the, Good answer. The, the, you know, Seattle Shakespeare Company, I have enormous respect for them. They do incredible work. They just did a performance of Shakespeare in Love. It was a huge hit. Great. But, I, you know, do we all need to go out and, and see that? I don't know. It's a great story. It's, it's fun to think about the stuff that's in there. Uh, you know, the, the recent play about the diverted plains in Newfoundland 
far and away, isn't that come up, from away? Come from away. Yeah, that was recently produced at uh, Seattle Rep. That's a play people need to pay attention to because it came out of something organic. This incredible experience that this town in Newfoundland. Uh, had when planes were diverted because of the 9-11 bombings and they were suddenly this small town was invaded by thousands of people from these planes and how the community felt about it and dealt with it ended up making this incredible play happen uh, out of a, a need to tell that story. So uh, I, I think what we need to do is make sure that we're all paying attention to new playwrights and to going the question is you know sometimes i would say we're doing this play and it's called the north plant and people's response is well i've never heard of that yeah i know that's why you probably might want to go see it as opposed to i select things that you've heard of or maybe even already seen so you want to see it again I'm not sure that's the right way to approach it. And so I, th I think the answer is whatever the local play is that's being written right now is the one that's most important because it's dealing with, you know, the world in which we live in. We're already looking for plays that we think tap into some of the issues that uh, – are on us. There's a play I've got a reading coming up of of The Pillow Man by Martin McDonough that's about uh, interrogations. Uh, so it's easy enough to find this stuff out there. Yeah, I also think even just here in Seattle, Tim, there have been a number of shows recently where theaters, I think, are boldly um, taking a look at issues around diversity and inclusion and taking a look at the content of the shows that they produce. It's something we're thinking a lot about. A couple of examples. One, uh, Arts West did a production of An Octoroon, which was a very um, evocative story set at a time when um, an, an African-American woman who was, you know, essentially one eighth um, African-American potentially could be um, returned to slavery um, because of, uh, I, I won't get into the whole plot, but it, it but essentially unveiled a whole level of, of um, you know, uh, some of the crazy racial politics and norms and laws at the time that, that, um, and, and bringing that back to stage in a way that was very timely, uh, as well as uh, at Seattle Rep, they did a production of a, a play called Familiar, which uh, was amazing and, and a story that, you know, you wouldn't hear a lot about. It's about a, a Zimbabwean American family um, preparing for a, a wedding, but the 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 overlay of of issues around family and around race and around um, um, individuals uh, and and careers and hopes and dreams. Uh, it, it was uh, a, a lovely production. So to be able to see shows like that 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 challenge the way that uh, you know you look at the 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 the, the collection of, of 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 theater in the United States and 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 the the shows that have been produced over over the decades and. There is no shortage of of productions that are about, uh, you know, the 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 white 
male American point of view. And so it's exciting to me to, to see many theaters trying to break that mold and trying to, to roll out high quality, um, very compelling shows that, that, uh, that, that challenge a lot of, um, conceptions about how we think of, of, of justice and equality in America today. There's a play Matt and I were looking at that uh, has to do with gender roles and the internet. Uh, when I adopt a, a different personality online, does that make me that other person? To what degree do I remain the person I was and those are that I am? Uh, those are tough questions, not as easily answered as they might otherwise be. Yeah, you're just cheating on yourself if you're posing as something else online. Um, and you're going to you're going to forget the lies you're telling, you know, so you could never possibly be that person that you put yourself out there as father of the year on Facebook or whatever. <laughs> um, molds, origins. It, sometimes we don't understand where these stereotypical thoughts come from. And I was just talking to Jessica Christensen last episode. Um, she does this girls rock math and she was talking about a mold of how, from an early age, we put the female kids in the dress-up and the Barbie section at preschool, and we put the boys in the block section. And then they start having, you know, an introduction to math and stuff like that. And now you look at industry, most, most mathematical fields are dominated by men. But when you look in academia, the females are the ones with the higher scores across the board so there is a mold that we haven't broken from a boy girl m mold and it kind of goes to the you know not so bad now but the woman's place is in the kitchen pregnant barefoot you know being the wife go find a good man once you get of age you know and it's not find your passion find your career be your independent i'm very fascinated by where molds and these ideas like bigwigs. I found out that that term came from old colonial days when the rich people started wearing wigs because of their sexually transmitted diseases and their hair was falling out and that the rich only got the biggest wigs. And then that became a affluent lifestyle to have the white powdered wig. And the more wealthy you were, the bigger your wig was. So there is the term big wig. Those molds you're talking about are, are really reflective in uh, the acting community. So the Academy Award every year gives an award to the best actor. No. And then it gives an award <laughs> to the best actress. Yeah, and so they're going to put those into separate categories. And for a long time, only certain kinds of female roles were being considered for best actress. Now, I, I put actress in question marks because it's taken me about eight years now. I don't use that term anymore. No, it's an old term. They're just sure. actors. And one of the things that we're confronting in the a lot of the casting that we're doing right now is intentionally looking to consider people for roles that the role was of the gender that the role was not originally written for and stop worrying about what gender a particular role is and say, we need the six best actors we can get our hands on. 
and we're going to send those out on stage and we don't care what what color they are what gender they are we just we just want the six best actors we can get we want blurred lines yeah completely and sometimes you you are forced into choices because of things that characters say and you have to respect those as well but both matt and i are committed to looking at different ways of of skinning that uh, of peeling that orange, uh, of getting it at what the what the juice is inside, um, and and the gender of of who delivers that message isn't as important as we think it is. Absolutely. How do, how does one start playwriting? What is the lead in if if you're an author or a writer or something? What makes that change to playwright? What's what's that process look like? If you hear voices in your head. So all playwrights are schizophrenic. Is that what you're saying? No, okay. they're only schizophrenic if they talk back to them. <laughs> uh, um, and you should do that with your comments on, on online too, <laughs> right? So I think it's I think it's whether or not uh, playwrights think in terms of the words that people say. They hear conversations. So there are a lot of writers who uh, see things and they describe what they see. And uh, those authors become uh, very indirect discourse heavy, descriptions of scenes. And, and there's a, f- a little bit of dialogue in there to, to drive their plot around, but, but it's more painting a scene. Uh, a playwright thinks in terms of the words that people say, uh, and, and that's what makes a, a playwright have to put them down on the page. I've got to get this conversation down. Do you think playwrights are more empathetic? Because they um, think about the words that people use. Matt, join in here. I'm not. I'm not sure. That's a great question. I think part of what's uh, 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 an exceptional challenge around writing for the stage is not only the, the the words that people are saying, but being able to present a story in which there's something that characters need and want we say words because we're trying to do something we're not just talking we're trying to accomplish something there's something we want and the best plays are those where you have clear um uh you know wants and desires on the part of the characters and there's a conflict and how is this going to you know, resolve itself. Um, you know, the, 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 the gist of a play and having conversation that is in a setting with, with those rich characters and, and conflicts, I think is, is, is part of what makes theater magical. It's incredibly hard to write a play. I have limitless respect for anybody who's sat down at the typewriter and banged it out. It, it, uh, what? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's stunning. I'm such a Luddite. Uh, it's a good stunning. word. Shout out to John Evison. Uh, yeah, it's Luddite. Su- it's such a it's such a wonderful gift, and and being able to produce a play by Jim Anderson, who's a friend of both of ours, uh, closed closed for maintenance, was written by a friend of ours. Forty five minute play, um, and uh, seeing what he went through, watching his words take shape in space and time on stage was was really inspiring and, and a lot of what drives Matt and I to do what we do. Do you think his play was a tipping point for you guys to get this started? It certainly didn't hurt. It was uh, really well received. The The feedback we got from audience 
members who who attended was uh, I think very very um, uh, uh, heartening. Gotcha. Is that a word? Heartening. Yeah. 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 Sure. It was very heartening. <laughs> it's lovely. Um, we talked a little bit about playwright and how they look at the words that are spoken from a director's standpoint. What are they looking for and what is their job exactly? Is it, is it, here's the green tape that you need to step on, or this is how I perceive the audience seeing you walk into the play, or is it just managing exit stage left, exit stage right? You know, my, my theater is basically Pink Panther, but <laughs> I'd like <laughs> they, to know more. They, uh, it depends upon the director. Uh, so the so short, let's put you in those shoes. Yeah. But the short answer to your question is yes, it's all those things. And, and, uh, any director who's not attending to all of them is going to get himself in, tr- in trouble. Any director that spends a little too much time on one of those things is going to get in trouble. Uh, so yes, do X's and O's, do they matter? Absolutely. I would say for me, the single most important thing that the director has to know is what's the, what's the story? What's the story we're telling here? And be able to condense that entire story into two sentences. This is what the story is about. And to be able to then communicate that to his actors. Um, once an actor knows what the story is, then it's up to the actor to deliver the role that's going to advance that story. And that's why you might go see the same Shakespeare play three or four times and see almost, that's a totally different play than the last one I saw. Yes, that's because the director had a different vision, had a different understanding of what the story is. So I think the single most important thing is, is to understand what the story is. And then a great director... Um, lets the actors work it out and watches and tweaks and pushes um, and encourages the actors to find the things in the in themselves that makes them do what the actor what the director wants them to do. The wonderful thing when an actor comes up with an idea is that uh, they never have a hard time remembering it. If the director tells them to walk across the stage at a particular moment, they'll walk across, that actor will walk across the stage at that moment. But the reason that that actor walks across the stage will be completely unintelligible to the members of the audience. Why is that actor walking across the stage? And then as an actor myself, I'm sitting there and I think, oh, it's because the director told him to. If the director says to the actor, I need you to be on that side of the stage. The actor goes, well, why didn't you tell me to cross? I said, I'm not going to tell you when. I just need you to get over there. And then suddenly the actor says in the middle of rehearsal, oh, oh, I know why I'm going. And I say, okay, well, let's see. And the the, the scene happens and you go, yes, that's, that's exactly right. That works fine. Outstanding, we move on. The actor will always remember why it is they're crossing the stage and will always have a clear purpose. And one of the magics of theater is that the audience will know that purpose even if the actor doesn't say it. Does that answer your question, yes. Tim? Yes. And let's just go down a few of these theater jobs here. As an actor, is it your job to develop the character or is it the playwright already developed the character for the actor to act like that? It is your as a actor, you your job. Like that? Your job is to learn your lines and show up on time. <laughs> There's got to be more to it. Well, and it's it's interesting, Tim, because different directors work in different ways. But where I have had the greatest 
pleasure, I think, is one where, like you said, it's a collaboration. And, you know, uh, for example, with Tom's style, right, Tom and, and other directors I've worked with give a great amount of leeway to an actor to come to the table, to come to the stage with an idea of who is my character, what am I trying to accomplish and how, and and then to to really be able to work together to to figure out to figure that out and figure out what works, what doesn't, what, what reads to the audience, um, as clear. Do you understand why they made that cross? Was that, was, was that authentic or was that just cause I told you to, you know, get to the other side? Okay. I, I'll shorten this conversation a little bit. Two more jobs. What does a key grip do? And, <laughs> and best boy. <laughs> So those are those are film production terms, and they're, they're credit best boy. I was like, I, I could probably do that and be in a movie. <laughs> <laughs> I've always wondered the same thing, Tim. So maybe Matt, you can tell us. Oh gosh, you know my uh, film production experience extends only so far as to having helped my son produce a couple of uh, short films that and, that he's made. And Ben's productions are top notch. Uh, it's wonderful. Uh, the opportunity. This is the opportunities you were talking about earlier that. Uh, anybody with a camera can make a film now. And um, Ben Eldridge is making films and they're awesome. Shout out to Ben. Put a brick on your head. You're growing too tall, kid. <laughs> <laughs> well, Matt and Tom, indie theater. Well, I'm still waiting to hear what a key grip. Or, does, okay. Don't they hold the microphone? Uh, I don't remember if I had, if I had internet. Did, did we answer what a best boy is? <laughs> I, I don't know that either. I forget. All right. Truth be told. Uh, let, let's end on at least an answered question. Producer, why is there sometimes a million producers listed? Is that why, so they don't have to pay them as additional directors? or What is a producer? I feel like it's just a, well, there's, a thrown in, out title. In, in films, there's producers and, and executive producers. So the executive producers don't do anything, and the producers do everything. Although... Executive producers would say they bring money or That's prestige to the table that is of value to to financing the production. So there's a that's that's a pretty important role, and for that they get recognized as an executive producer. It's part of the the glory uh, that goes along with it. That's the list of the people who came up with the money to make the show, and and sometimes you'll see them popping up, like uh, somebody who might have written, done a rewrite in there might pop up. Well, there, producers hire all the people who hire everybody else. Um, so, a producer might have been the one that drug a certain actor in. Might have. Although casting directors usually are in charge of that. There's a whole level of producer hires a casting director. The casting director then works with the director to understand what the story is, and then delivers actors that that particular casting director thinks would be good to consider. But you know. At, once you're getting up to larger productions, you might see 50 or 100 even top-name people to be considered for a particular role. Wow. Yeah, I see some of those casting directors. They have the, they work with a certain group, and then you'll see that certain group in another play or another movie or another TV show. And it's the same three, four people. You know, like, these are the actors I have in my pocket. A lot of those Law & Order type. Sometimes it's the director who's, who's putting in, uh, exerting control. When a director likes to work with a particular actor, you're much more likely to see that 
actor in future roles uh, directed by that director. There's a a good relationship. I didn't. I would never have dreamed of doing Summer Shakespeare without Matt Eldridge on my stage. <laughs> and it's funny, Tim, because in in theater you tend to see less of that sort of you know producers and executive producers sort of dichotomy or you know diversity. Um, that said, um, if there are any folks who are interested in executive producing and indie theater production, we're, 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 we'll be we're glad certainly to open share to that. consideration. We'll be glad to share that particular uh, title with anybody interested. The Bystander Podcast now brings you Under the Milkwood, a play <laughs> of voices by Dylan Thomas, November 8th and 11th. Executive produced by? Studio 15 Productions, right here. And that's a false, false sense of something. Um, great celluloid area here um a lot of actors a lot of filmmakers uh, a lot of theater it's um a collaborative effort i see it cross collaborating i i think that you guys will be highly successful because there is room for you guys there is desire for people to participate in it there's people that are willing to donate and there's definitely people like me that in, enjoy coming out and watching the theater. Boys, thanks for your time. I Thank you, Tim. What a you. delight to chat about things we love. You guys are welcome back anytime. Come back, talk about your next play. Um, bring Chris in if you can for me. Um, say hi to the wife and kids, Matt and uh, Tom. It was a pleasure to meet you. Thanks so much, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having us, Tim. You've been listening to the Bystander Podcast. Be kind.